Hi, I'm Carla Wren. Clinicians in this post-pandemic era are managing an increase of post-viral illness, including autoimmune activation or worsening of autoimmune symptoms, neuroinflammation and cardiometabolic inflammation, which can seem difficult to unravel. Join me on Wednesday, August 9th at 7pm for Bioceuticals Clinical Mastery, Neuroinflammation and the Cognitive Impacts of Post-Viral Syndrome. In this 90-minute session, I'll be sharing my clinical strategies and therapeutics to support the health and vitality of patients suffering with the wide and variable symptoms associated with post-viral syndromes, particularly complex neuroinflammation and its potential chronic health implications. Go to bioceuticals.com.au to reserve your place today. Welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional and complementary medicine. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, where we live and work, and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. On the line with us today is Dr. Christina Harris, Director of Research at Omega Quant Analytics. Christina has a PhD in Nutritional Science and is an Assistant Professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of South Dakota School of Medicine. Her primary area of research is Omega-3s and maternal health. Today, we'll be looking at some recent research and discussing omega-3s from different angles, the quality, relevant conditions that respond to omega-3s, and of course, the prescribing options. Welcome to FX Medicine, Christina. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Now, I'd like to start with setting the scene. So globally, omega-3 essential fatty acids are a 1.4% billion dollar industry and most fish oils come from anchovies in Peru with the end oil being around 30% EPA and DHA per gram and then industry refines that oil to be higher strength EPA and DHA and also to remove any contaminants such as heavy metals. Interestingly, the main reason people start taking Amigas is because their health practitioner advised them to. And that means that we, as clinicians, really need to have our finger on the pulse and be recommending Amigas in a way that really aligns with the available research. Now, first of all, Christina, can you explain who the Global Organisation for EPA and DHA are and why they're so important for our industry? I mean, this organisation is voluntary, it's voluntary membership, but they do agree to certain standards. And do you think this has helped overall quality within the industry? Yeah, that's a great question. And GOED is, well, we're members of it and it's it's really a trade group for EPA and DHA specifically, and so there's lots of different people who participate, mostly fish oil manufacturers, all the way from like the people who are doing the catching of the anchovies or other kinds of fish, mm-hmm. processing them into crude oil, all the way down to like encapsulation and branding. Mm. And then there's the seafood companies, pharma companies, and then 
people just interested in increasing the availability of EPA and DHA for people to be able to consume. Mm. Um, And so because their main goal is really just to get people to eat more omega-3s, either from fish or fish oil, basically, Mm. they want to make sure that issues in the market are addressed. And one of the biggest issues is quality of Mm. supplements. So that's, I think, the main reason why they started to, they have something called a monograph where they have all of these stipulations of like, the supplement should have no more than this amount of an oxidative stress marker or an oxidation marker. Is the oil being carefully (laughs) cared for throughout the whole process? from catching the fish, getting the oil, putting it in the capsules. And so they test the end product. They test the the branded product off the shelves. They'll do like a random sampling across the world. Mm. Um, I think they're doing it once a year now. Okay. But I know with COVID, it kind of got slowed down. Those results are really just for the people who are in GoEd to give them um, a heads up on, on what the sampling is. It's not public-facing in that way. If they're part of GoEd, then they do agree for this testing and really almost all of them pass every level of the test, which is very rigorous. Mm. But IFOS is more of that third-party supplement testing label that you would see. Um, And GoEd kind of supports the larger industry behind it. But I think it does help with the transparency because they're very focused on it and they're doing these real-time tests. Mm. It is third-party so um, it's like being audited, yes. um, but it's not necessarily for consumers. Yes. I actually read through that monograph and it was incredibly technical. I, I was quite blown away mm-hmm. by how technical it was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, they test a lot. So yeah. it's far more intensive than just is there's the amount of EPA and DHA in a pill that they say that there is. It, it goes way beyond that. Yeah, as a clinician, it was incredibly reassuring to know that all this work goes on behind the scenes, which I think most Mm -hmm. clinicians are just not aware of, that any of that's going on. It seems like for the most part, most of the reputable brands are doing what it takes and have a good process for their supplements. But the problem is there's so many brands, Mm. (laughs) anyone can kind of start making supplements if they want to. And so it's just like... If you don't really know and you just go out on the internet and pick something, you may or may not be finding the reputable brand that's really doing the work. And I think just those small proportion of brands who aren't doing everything they can to get a good product can give everyone a bad name. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what are the differences between the three types of omega-3s? There's EPA, DHA, and alpha-linolenic mm-hmm. acid. Yeah, this is a great question, and this causes huge confusion Mm. in the marketplace. More, I think, on the food side maybe than the supplement side, but it's both. So they're all omega-3s. They're all polyunsaturated fatty acids first. So they all have this structure where they're they're these fatty acids, so that's just very long chains of carbon, which means lots of carbons connected to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a really efficient way to store carbons, which can then give us energy. And then ALA is is kind of the parent omega-3. From ALA, we can make all different kinds of omega-3s, including EPA and DHA, but we can't make ALA. We can't put the double bond on the third carbon from the omega end. And so the body has enzymes to put double bonds on certain locations in the fatty acids. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have the one 
to make that omega-3 one. And so that's why it's essential. That's why ALA is usually focused on because it's kind of the original um, essential fatty acid along with linoleic acid, which is an omega-6 fatty acid. Mm. And so those two are the shortest chain of the polyunsaturated fatty acids and they're the essential ones. But the efficiency of how well we make EPA and DHA from ALA is pretty low. It does change from male to female and a lot of other things. But generally, we'd say about 5% of ALA can be converted to EPA and about less than 1% makes it all the way to DHA. Wow. Um, there really seems to be a block at the conversion to DHA. Yes. Um, so EPA and DHA, they have you know, more carbons, more double bonds, and they are much more rare in our diet. Mm. ALA is found in walnuts and flaxseed and canola oil, plant-based. You can get ALA from plants. Mm. EPA and DHA are in nature only found in seafood and fish, which is super interesting. So they're kind of called the marine fatty acids, and that's where they originate from. We can't naturally get them from plants. Okay. So we can really only convert across to EPA and DHA, but that conversion is really inhibited and is quite poor. It is quite poor from the research that we have done. But that pathway, we're still learning about it, even though Mm. we've been, you know, (laughs) things can change and figuring out different ways to affect the conversion is something that people are really interested in. But from what we can tell, Eating fish, you get so much more of a omega-3 dose than eating a lot of flaxseed. Yeah. Um, as far as the EP and DHA levels, it's just there's no comparison. And it's just quite amazing how efficiently the body takes up EP and DHA and does not use it for energy. It puts it in membranes mm-hmm. of your cells and then it's used for other things, but it's not typically burned as energy. Yeah, really interesting. And what are the main mechanism of actions for EPA and DHA? How are they working in our bodies? Yeah, so this is just a fascinating area of research for Mm. decades. I mean, people are still fascinated by these fatty acids because of all these these mechanisms and, and clinical outcomes we're seeing. So again, grain of salt, these mechanisms are our best guess at the moment of how we think omega-3, EPA, and DHA are having clinical effects for people. The biggest one is probably around inflammation. Mm. And that's probably because inflammation is so core to so many of our disease processes. So if you're going to affect that one thing, it can affect basically your entire body. So EPA and DHA are metabolized by enzymes Mm -hmm. and those Metabolites will do a variety of things that are involved in the inflammation process. So typically the omega-6s have a more pro-inflammatory metabolite and the omega-3s have a a less inflammatory or a more anti-inflammatory or a pro-resolving metabolite. Mm. So if you think about an inflammatory event, if it's, let's say, a cut on your arm, your inflammation goes there, it wants to kill all the bacteria, it wants to close up the bleeding, it's very important But after that's done, you need a mechanism for it to heal. Mm. And so the omega-3s are a part of that healing mechanism where those metabolites will be coming up hours after or days after the event, and they'll be cleaning out the debris, cleaning out the bacteria, making sure that all the excess inflammatory cells are taken care of so that inflammation doesn't continue. You want it to happen and then stop. Mm. So the omega-3s, we think, are doing that stopping piece. Um, And they also, because of the ways omega-3s and omega-6s 
they, they have kind of a, a relationship in the membranes, in the cell membranes, where when omega-3s go up, they kind of decrease the omega-6s. And so there's also this aspect of if you have higher omega-3, you're also lowering the inflammatory potential by lowering the amount of omega-6s. Yeah. And so that's really a huge area. And then there are also omega-3s have been shown over and over again to lower plasma triglyceride levels. Mm. So they interact with the lipid and lipoprotein metabolism in that way very consistently. And they've also been shown to slightly lower blood pressure, to slightly, um, it, it kind of, to me, I think of it as blood flow, mm-hmm. where they also inter- in, intervene with platelet action. So it seems like in a lot of ways, they do allow for better blood flow throughout the body, which again, affects so many systems. So they inhibit platelet function, yeah. which would allow you to like, this is one of the worries people have is that if you have too many omega-3s on board, you'll bleed too much. Mm, mm. And it can be true if you do have a lot on board that you kind of bruise more, that you're bleeding, your cut might bleed a little longer. But we've shown in a lot of papers that for severe bleeding events that are actually life-threatening, the omega-3s do not increase risk of that in any way, even in surgery, okay. any of that. In fact, sometimes it makes it has better outcomes. But it's just that blood flow, lower inflammation, and the triglycerides are the three main areas that I see omega-3s having solid research around. Yeah, and, and we are going to deep dive into some really fascinating and interesting uh, studies and research today to get uh, some good clinical tips for, you know, myself and everyone else that's listening. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one of the main risks to the quality of omega-3s is oxidation, which you touched on before. And, you know, an estimated 20% of fish oil products have excess oxidation levels. And, you know, the question is, does the oxidation occur at the time of manufacturing? Does it occur during transport or or while, in fact, it's sitting on the shelf in a health food shop or a supermarket under bright lights. And the thing is, we know that quality matters and it can mean the difference between a patient reaching a therapeutic dose or not. And all the right criteria can be met by the manufacturer. But as clinicians, how do we try and ensure that oxidation doesn't happen? Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, you can look, have that third-party tested seal. Mm. Um, It's really somewhat trial and error in finding the companies that you like that are really committed to reducing as much of the variability as they can, like having a a darker glass packaging or just complete darkness for their pills. And I will say like fish oil processes are not my expertise. So that, (laughs) put that out there, but I have, from what I understand, a big area where the brand and their quality processes is important is that encapsulation process. Mm, I think mm. all the oils are tested after they've, you know, like you've explained, when they're kind of in the barrel still. And when yeah. they go from barrel to encapsulation, that can be more different across brands. So that's where that brand quality is something that you kind of have to trial and error that. The other way for, that we think that you can really find out if, yeah. if your supplement is quality is to trial and error on yourself and do test your omega-3 status mm. in your blood. Yeah, good Take point. the capsules for three or four months and then retest. Mm. And it should go up. And if it doesn't, which we've seen, then you don't have a quality supplement or it's not working for you. The other thing is the age of the supplement's really important. I think usually do some years is the shelf life of fish oil. Yeah. So 
the fresher it is, the better it is with these oils. And so that's also something to kind of maybe look for. Yeah. And I think as clinicians, we need to be asking questions of companies, you know, asking mm-hmm. them specific questions, you know, go to the GoEd website, have a look at the information there and, and, you know, be asking those really pointed questions towards the companies that you do use for supplements, because mm-hmm. on a cellular level, we want to be affecting change. So we've got to ensure that the product mm-hmm. we're using is high quality. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. You know, contamination is also an is- issue to be considered. Mm-hmm. I was reading a really interesting 2017 study that showed that rats fed fish oil that contained persistent organic pollutants developed polyps on their colon. So the transparency mm-hmm. regarding where the fish oil is sourced from and screening for contaminants, I mean, we can be asking these questions of our suppliers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely scary. Like, it feels scary. And I think. To some extent, there is rationale behind that, but the other, to some extent, it's overblown. So Mm. for one example, fish and seafood have polychlorinated biphenyls, PCBs, and that's something that people worry about. But it's also present in any animal meat that has fat, so a a full-fat dairy, Mm -hmm. beef that has fat. It's actually typically in higher amounts in those other foods that we eat all the time, at least (laughs) if you choose to eat meat. We often eat a lot more of those. So just targeting that towards seafood, I don't think is fair. And I think it it just adds to some of the fear around seafood that we have. Mm. And the other thing with the mercury levels is, at least in the U.S., the majority of the seafood that is most commonly consumed has much, much lower levels of mercury than even our very conservative toxic targets. Like you'd have to eat pounds and pounds of salmon a week to be able to meet that toxicity level. The one that might be kind of on the edge is, I think it's albacore canned tuna. Mm. And that's just recommended just have that once a week instead of every day kind of thing. So that's just kind of on that. But I did look into the study that you mentioned. Mm. And this is something that happens a lot, especially in the animal studies where they're trying to see an effect is they are giving super physiological doses. So I think they're saying the rats are fed a diet of 15% corn oil Mm -hmm. or cod liver oil or the POP fish. And that is unattainable in the human diet. So typically as a percent of calories, the omega-3s are 1% to 2%, and that's for ALA, EPA, DHA, any omega-3 as kind of the recommended. And EPA and DHA are like 10% of that. So they're at those 0.1 to 0.2% of our calories. They're really, they're in doses kind of like a vitamin or a mineral. They're okay. really, we think a gram of that a day is a lot. And you think about all the grams of fat you eat in a day. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. so this study, I would not take and worry about because it's not physiologically real. Like mm. it, we, we don't eat these. We don't eat corn oil in that amount. It's far beyond what we would eat. So Yeah. And look, interestingly, you know, there's more and more people that are choosing not to eat 
animal products for whatever reason. Correct. You know, the Marine mm-hmm. Stewardship Council is a global non-profit organisation and, you know, their thing is to address the problem of unsustainable fishing and to safeguard our seafood for the future. But looking at vegan alternatives to marine-based omega-3s, a review that I read stated algal oil does, in fact, increase plasma DHA. And I do I know you do a lot of work in this testing space. Can you give us any mm-hmm. insights into how effective you think algal oil is and what kind of doses are needed to match those marine-based omegas? Yeah, this is a great question. The algal oils are the same EPA and DHA that we get in the fish oils. Mm-hmm. They're, they have the algae that the fish eat and they feed them sugar and they make the omega-3s. That's what they do. So yeah. it's the same response that you see in from a fish oil. It's just milligram per milligram. The DHA from the algal is the same as fish oil. So as far as dosing goes, technically, if you're going to try and give, let's say, a gram EPA and DHA yeah. from fish oil, you could aim for one gram of DHA from algal. But the problem, I would say, in reality is the algals are still quite a bit more expensive Mm, to get that high of a dose. And so if you're going like a vegan, straight algal DHA, I usually don't aim as high for the dose of the blood level. And that's a couple different reasons. One is some of what fish oils are doing, I feel like are... (laughs) kind of buffering us against some of our poor dietary choices. Mm. And vegans tend to take away a lot of the negative dietary choices. Not all vegan diets are perfect, but just having that level of vegetables happening does a lot of good. And so for most vegans, we did a study and and they were averaging about just below 4% omega-3 index. And that's typically where we are. That's a higher risk for heart disease. And that's kind of the undesirable zone. That 4% blood level, that was without supplementing? That was food only? Without supplementing. Right. Okay, got it. Yeah. So even if you're not eating fish, there's omega-3s in your body. Your body's going to make some amount. Yeah. But then they did supplement the people with algal DHA, and they Mm -hmm. were able to get their levels up just like anyone else would on a supplement. But in clinical practice, I kind of see like a 6% as a good intermediate target, especially if what it takes to get to 8% is usually over a gram a day for most people. And to do over a gram a day, an algal DHA could be very expensive. And so being that moderately high level instead of the full 8% for a longer period of time, if that's better and for your the cost of everything, mm. I think that's a good target for vegans. Yeah, I love that. I think that's a really balanced approach. And uh, we're going to deep dive into some research on pregnancy and prenatal health. And of Mm -hmm. course, it depends on what's going on for that person. But I think to aim for a 6% blood level of DHA for vegans, that sounds really sensible. You know, you're only trying to bump it up Mm -hmm. on average 2%. uh, So hopefully that's not going to need a bucket load of supplements for that. So that's actually really insightful and good news. Now, if you were choosing a fish oil supplement, what's your criteria? I mean, what boxes Mm. does Christina need to tick to say, yes, I'm happy to prescribe this for my patients? Yeah, this is a super personal decision (laughs) Um, because the most important thing is something that people are going to take over a long period of time. Yes. And so it needs to be the right 
like price is kind of important to some. Mm. Um, if it's a capsule, how big, how small, can you go liquid? You know, those kind of habitual things that we don't really think about. That's a really important bucket to mm. take seriously. Yeah. Because they it might be expensive or like hard to swallow and they'll just kind of stop taking it. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Compliance. You know? And is they don't everything. want to tell you that it's yeah. just because it's a you know bigger pill than I like, but that's so important. So that's important. And then the other side, more technically, the main things are dose, form of omega-3s. Mm-hmm. And when you take it, like if you're taking it with food, it's also really key. So yes. the dose and the form are really key in how it's going to affect your blood levels. For me, targeting blood levels is what I like to do. So if you eat a ton of fish, you might not need a supplement. Yeah, um, true. So that's what the testing your blood levels does. If you're a pescatarian, you eat the Japanese style diet. I mean, people definitely have an 8% on a natural, just fish heavy diet. Yeah. Okay. If you're not, if you're kind of in between, most people are kind of eating some fish and then supplementing. And so for me, the dose is the most important thing. We've done studies on this to show that going from 4% omega-3 index to 8%, and I should just quickly define the omega-3 index, it's the amount of EPA and DHA in a red blood cell membrane okay. as a percent of total fatty acids. Mm-hmm. And it's a really good marker of intake, also really predictive of a lot of health outcomes. And so 4% we see is kind of a standard Western level low fish intake And then 8%, that's kind of more normal in high fish eating populations like the Japanese Mm -hmm. or people who do supplement. And so to go from 4 to 8% takes about 1,400 milligrams of a triglyceride-based supplement. It takes about 2 grams of an ethyl ester base. So so it's basically the triglyceride-based supplements are a little bit better absorbed. You can take a little bit lower dose typically to get to the same blood levels. And this is what we found in our paper. And so so the ethyl ester forms are the first pharmaceutical omega-3s where they really were able to concentrate them. The issue is for some people, there's an absorption issue for the ethyl esters, especially if they take it on an empty stomach or with a low-fat meal. Mm, So I've counseled people and they've They've taken a really nice product, great brand, healthcare provider, supplement brand, but it's an ethylester product and they were taking it on an empty stomach. Right. And she tested, she did it for like a year where she was testing. She increased her dose from 1,400 to 2,000, mm-hmm. still stayed about 5% omega-3 index. Mm. And finally, I was she finally called me and I was like, when are you taking it? And she said, I'm taking it in the morning. I said, take it with food, take it at night, yeah. anything. And then she started to do that and her levels went up. So yeah. you can waste a lot of money and time if you don't. <laughs> well, I think, <laughs> I think this really points uh, to us that we need to be covering basics before we get fancy. Mm-hmm. And we need to be making sure that our patients are taking supplements at the right time and not taking them with mm-hmm. other things that might interact with their absorption. So cover the basics mm-hmm. is the first step. And then yeah. aim for around 1,400, 1,500 milligrams 
grams EPA DHA a day for an average. But let's look further into some research. Now, there was the UK Biobank. It's a population-based cohort of around 500,000 people aged between 40 and 69. And at Mm -hmm. baseline, 32% of these people were taking a fish oil. So researchers have studied the epidemiological data and there have been some really significant outcomes. You know, fish oil supplements associated with a 13% lower risk for developing dementia and an 18% lower risk of developing diabetes. Now, how Mm -hmm. important is epidemiological data like this and can we actually take that data, extrapolate it and use it to help inform our clinical practice? Like, Can we do that? It's probably a bit of a jump to go from epidemiology to clinical practice, Mm -hmm. but it's a really amazing database for research. And we actually, at OmegaQuant and then the Fatty Acid Research Institute, or FARI, which is a nonprofit that we support that Bill Harris, who started OmegaQuant, started. So they're over there doing research, and they actually have now, they have gotten comparison blood from the UK Biobank, tested it against our method of fatty acid analysis. They have a method of fatty acid analysis. We found a correlation. And so now we are publishing, I think we have one paper published and then many more coming (laughs) on the UK Biobank using blood levels instead of reported fish oil. Mm. Um, Reported fish oil intake, anytime it's a self-report, there's a level of variability. People may report, yeah, I take fish oil, but I take it once every six months when I think of it. You know, like, yeah. There's a huge amount of variability in what that means to somebody. And there's no information on dose, of course, and all this. Yeah. Um, and, you know, whether so they're taking it, can, it on an empty stomach first thing in the morning, you know, all of those things. Exactly. But exactly. if you can correlate, Christina, this is what's what I'm excited about, because if you can correlate the blood levels from the UK Biobank, then perhaps mm-hmm. we can more likely extrapolate that information that that reveals. It gets closer. Yeah. It's like a big step closer. Yeah, and it's great. such a huge database. And it's a great representative sample. Because mm. um, that's another huge issue in our smaller research studies is that it's just not representative. Yeah. Um, there are certain people that will sign up for a study and certain people who won't. And that kind of bias is very, very hard to tease Mm. out. And so when you have these huge studies, usually you sacrifice specificity and control, but it's huge data. So we've done a look at the the dementia has been corroborated in other studies using blood levels. The developing of diabetes with the fish oil users, that's a little bit more, I'm a little bit more suspicious of that finding because it hasn't been overly strong in the clinical research giving fish oil and what it does to insulin and glucose metabolism. Mm. So it could be a signal that people who are taking fish oil are also doing other healthy behaviors. Mm, And and that's pretty typical in the big data studies. So that's where the blood levels really come in and they just cut through all the noise. We control for all the other habits that we can. And then hopefully we have something that's very much tied to actual amount of omega-3 in your body and what it's doing for health. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And look, talking about dosing, you know, a few years ago, practice guidelines were released from the International Society for Nutritional Psychiatry about omega-3s for major depressive disorder. And these guidelines recommended a two-to-one ratio of EPA to DHA and a net daily EPA of one to two grams. As a clinician, it was really great to see that they acknowledged in these guidelines that the quality of the supplement can affect the therapeutic activity. And I think this is one point that we all agree on and we all explain to our patients. But what are your general recommendations on dosing in this space? Yeah, it's a really interesting study. It's one of few clinical groups that actually are getting into the weeds on the omega-3s and giving really specific dosing. So it's Mm. super helpful. It's also interesting now that we have been able to have pure EPA or pure DHA supplements and being able to control the ratio of the two in supplements fairly easily, we're just at the beginning of figuring out for each different kind of health outcome what is an EPA or DHA that's better? Do we mm. want a little more EPA or more DHA? Or, you know, so there's a lot left to be learned. But in the psychiatric space, a meta-analysis showed that a high-dose EPA was really effective and really quickly effective on, I think it was mostly depression symptoms, okay. more in the, in the area of mood than cognitive decline. Mm-hmm. That area, EPA has been shown to be more effective. And then in the pregnancy space, DHA has been shown to be more effective. And so I kind of end up, if it's just a general person, mm-hmm. I want a mix of EPA and DHA. I don't care too much if it's super high EPA or super high DHA or just a nice balance, but if the overall dose is high enough, that's what I'm most concerned about. Yeah. And, and I think one thing is for sure is that we are just at the tip of the iceberg on everything to do with the meat because I feel like we've been saying this for so long now but you know the more we're learning the more we realize we don't know but (laughs) it's so true I want to take a look at the vital study this again was a population-based study with over 25,000 people that showed that the subjects who had the lowest fish intake were the ones who received the most benefits from taking omega-3s. So this particular demographic had an overall reduction in their all-cause mortality and a 19% reduction in major cardiovascular events. In your opinion, I mean, who is most at need of omega-3s? This is very typical, I think, in a lot of the omega-3 research, is Mm -hmm. the people who benefit the most are the people who come in with the lowest blood levels of omega-3. They're, Mm. quote, deficient. And so, of course, if they're somewhat deficient in that nutrient, providing them that nutrient at a, at a good dose should have biological effects. Yeah. For people who aren't as deficient, that change is not as dramatic and you might not see an effect. And we'll talk about this later in this talk with the pregnancy stuff because yeah. there's some very clear data there. But with the vital, when I saw those subgroups, I just kind of think, well, duh. Yeah. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> of yeah. course, it's people who didn't eat fish, and that correlates to low blood levels. And giving them that nutrient that is missing in their diet, it's appropriate. It's supplementing their diet where it's deficient. And so I think that it makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I think it makes perfect sense that people who already had higher blood levels didn't experience as much of a benefit as well. So That's also very important to keep in mind when we look at research studies. Have they been measuring blood levels or at least fish intake and supplement 
use at the beginning of the study and analyzing data that way. Mm, and this is an interesting point around setting expectations when we're working with our patients. You know, if we know that somebody mm-hmm. is already eating fish a couple of times a week, eats a lot of nuts, seeds, you know, leafy greens, the expectations around what a fish oil might do for them is going to be very different to somebody who is not eating any fish and is not eating those other foods so that then we can actually explain to our patients, you know, this is why, this is what the research shows and this is what we can expect by giving you this dose. Being specific around the expectations I think is so good when we're dealing with our patients and, and their expectations. I think that's essential because if they're taking it or taking a little more above their diet and they don't feel anything. A Mm. lot of times people don't feel the omega-3 change. (laughs) Sometimes they do, but if they're very deficient, they do usually. If they're not so much, it doesn't feel that different. And then they might just stop taking it or they might just stop, you know? So like you said, the expectation setting is just really important. Yeah. Now, a fascinating study that came out in October 2022 looked at the relationship between red blood cell omega-3, markers of cognitive decline and brain imaging in middle-aged adults. And there were over 2,100 subjects with an average age of 46. And outcomes were that the subjects with higher levels of omega-3s had a larger hippocampus and better abstract reasoning. And the researchers pointed out epidemiological and intervention studies suggest omega-3 may be most beneficial to preserve brain health from early midlife just before the onset of moderate cognitive changes. Now, I have to give you this insight. I'm about to turn 49. And when I saw the age here, 46, I thought, thank goodness, I'm already taking my fish oils. But ideally, when should our patients start taking fish oils to protect against cognitive decline? Like maybe they have some family history that they really want Uh to work on. Tell us a bit more about that. My first rule is if you're low in omega-3s, you're going to benefit from omega-3s. My second one is that you need to have them on board before the health events start happening. Mm, Um, The strongest research is showing that people who have higher levels of omega-3s throughout their life, and then 10 years later, they're less likely to have any of the big things, heart attacks, strokes, issues with cognitive decline, all of that. It's having the omega-3s in your body to deal with the small inflammatory events that are happening that Mm. turn into the big ones. Okay. And that's this your question about preventative versus therapeutic. Yeah. I think this is huge. Yeah. Omega threes are so much more powerful, probably at lower doses, as a preventative. If you're taking it, basically, if you have a good amount of omega threes in your body throughout your entire life, yeah, <laughs> it's really like the lifespan at this point. And trying to use omega threes as a therapeutic after something has happened, after a heart attack, after cognitive decline has started, you're going to have to use a higher dose Mm. and you're probably going to have poorer outcomes. You might have a little bit of improvement, but you didn't completely prevent something from happening. Mm. So that's where I'd rather have more people have a moderate omega-3, like a 6% omega-3 index over the course of their life than have 4%, have an event happen. They're up at 8, they're up at 12%, but then they kind of, (laughs) you know, drop down because it takes so much to get there. Mm -hmm. That moderate level 
consistently over your life is really beneficial. Yeah, and I think that was an interesting point. So from that preventative model, fish oils really shine in this space of lifespan and health span you know, at lower Mm -hmm. doses for a longer period Mm -hmm. of time rather than higher doses at a latter point in life. Like I feel like that is Mm -hmm. pure preventative medicine there. It is. And it's more accessible Mm. through diet. It hits more closely to the fish recommendations that we have. And usually it's two or three servings a week. Make sure it's got some fatty fish. Those and epidemiology on people who eat seafood is very strong because it's consistent. If fish is part of your cultural daily life, it's not like, oh, I have to remember to take a supplement. It's like, this is just what I'm eating. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's a habit. Um, Yeah. So it's easier to hit 250 to 500 milligrams, which is often where the recommendations come. And that's kind of that lower bar. If I'm trying to treat someone and I'm giving them 250 to 500, I'm not expecting to see a difference in a short time because it's kind of a low dose. Mm. So that's that difference of, well, if I'm trying to treat you, I'm going to give you one or two grams at least so you feel something and because we're trying to play catch up now. But on a public health level, those recommendations, I think, can be lower. But then it, it confuses people too because yeah, it does. <laughs> really, too, you know, it's two different things. Yeah, interesting. Let's move to a US-based paper from 2010, which assessed the impact of modifiable risk factors and the number of deaths across the US population. And the mortality effects of low dietary intake of omega-3s were estimated to be 84,000 people annually, with the main causes of death being ischemic heart disease and stroke. Now, interestingly, if you smoked and then took omega-3s, your risk for disease was the same as non-smokers who were not taking fish oils. So how do you think that omega-3s reduce all-cause mortality? I mean, we've talked about the inflammation side of things, which I think is the crux of it, but any other mechanism on the all-cause mortality front you can think of? Yeah, I think these, just like this kind of study, we have seen a couple of examples of the same pattern where omega-3s are kind of of like the vegan conversation we're having. (laughs) They're kind of making up for excess inflammation that we're adding to our life. Another really interesting study along these lines was looking at people who lived in areas of high air pollution and Mm. whether or not they had higher or lower blood levels of omega-3s actually their brain sizes were affected. So if they had high omega-3 and high pollution, the size of their brains were maintained. Okay. But if they were in an area of high pollution and low omega-3, they had shrinkage. Um, Wow. So it's that protective piece where having the omega-3s on board and you're getting hit with these kind of excessive inflammatory events, it protects you. It Mm. doesn't like grow your brain, but it maintains your brain. We see this also in a lot of the athletic literature where the omega-3s don't grow your muscles, but if you get injured, it helps maintain your muscles. Or Mm. if you're getting older, it helps maintain the amount of muscle you have. So I think that is coming back to inflammation and blood flow is really important. Like having good blood flow is similar to some of the benefits of exercise. It's Mm -hmm. just getting that blood going through your body in a easier way, I think helps all of your systems. And so those two big areas of inflammation and blood flow to me are probably the main things that are helping us live longer and better when we have more omega-3s on board. And of course, the omega-3s 
combat some of the excessive inflammation that Mm -hmm. we might be putting onto our body. But if we can also take away some of that excessive inflammation through just not smoking, or if we don't live in a place with high air pollution, Mm. the omega-3s aren't as needed necessarily because you've already taken away some of those injuries, basically. Yeah. And I love this concept. I mean, inflammation, I think... As practitioners, we have this awareness around fish oils and inflammation, but I love this concept that you've referred to a couple of times of blood flow. And I think it's a new way for us to potentially look at omega-3s and how beneficial they are. And it's also a great way to explain their benefits to our patients. Yeah, they affect the endothelial function of blood vessels and how well they, I mean, that's one piece. The other piece is the platelets. The other piece that we sometimes, that we that we talk about a lot, but we aren't, new research that we've been doing, mm-hmm. we, don't, we aren't finding the things we thought we would, but just the actual cell membrane flexibility is pretty important as it turns out. So like red blood cells have to go to the capillary. They have to be very flexible and squeeze in. Having just the structure of omega-3s because they're kind of those bigger structures, they're not straight lines like saturated fats, mm. that creates space in the membrane, which creates flexibility and fluidity. And so all of those kind of point to an easier blood flow. And that doesn't, your heart doesn't have to work as hard. Mm. It gets into your brain, but you know, it's just good blood flow is good for everything. Yeah. And just the cellular nutrition side of things, Mm -hmm. when you have superior blood flow, we know that our cells are going to be bathed and nourished in more nutrients. So I feel like that could be, I'm sure somebody out there is doing research on that cellular nutrition changes in relation to this, but Mm -hmm. it'd be fascinating to know more about it. Yeah. Let's shift to an area of expertise for you, which is omega-3s before, during, and after pregnancy. Omega-3s are critical for the rapid brain development and the body during that first 1,000 days of life. Let's first look at prenatal omegas, then move to pregnancy, and then this fascinating area of breast milk omegas. Now, I know you recommend a prenatal DHA red blood level of 5%. And generally about 20% of women in childbearing age will have that level of DHA. And your data shows that if a woman eats fish twice a week, her DHA levels are around 5%, as you've mentioned, and that supplementation can increase DHA levels by 2%, thereby getting closer to the 8%. Now, a little study, a small study you did showed a dose of only I was really interested in this. Only 200 milligrams of DHA per day increase red blood cell DHA significantly in non-pregnant and pregnant women, but not as much in breastfeeding women. Now, why do you think that was so? Mm -hmm. Oh, this is such an interesting study. It was a study that was done at Cornell University, Marie Cottle's lab. Mm -hmm. They have done so much great work on choline in pregnancy. And that's what the study was looking at. It was looking at two levels of choline. And they had three groups. They had a non-pregnant women of childbearing age group, pregnancy group. And this was, I believe, the third trimester. And then they had women who were breastfeeding. I would think they were within 10 weeks postpartum, at least. Uh, It was pretty close, pretty close to when they had given birth. And so they were testing the choline levels that everyone was getting 200 milligrams of DHA. And so we saw that and we were interested in what does 200 milligrams of DHA do to Mm. blood levels because we didn't really have that. So we asked them if we could have some blood. They did. It was great. We had a great collaboration with that group. 
And so that's what we published here. And 200 milligrams of DHA, it's a low level, but it's kind of a standard recommended level for pregnancy if there is one. Mm. Current recommendations are, I mean, technically they recommend that pregnant women have 200 milligrams of DHA extra a day Mm. on top of what they assume is 100 milligrams a day. But that assumption is probably double. It is double of what (laughs) women actually are taking in on average of DHA. So the 200 is very commonly found. And often, if you get a prenatal supplement, it'll be 200 DHA. Mm -hmm. So what we found was that that 200 uh, amount was enough to take most of these women, their DHA levels, not EPA and DHA, but just their DHA levels up to above 5%. Mm. Um, the pregnant women actually already were at 5%. They increased. So the women who weren't pregnant and the pregnant women, they were taking in the DHA and it was going into their own bodies, their own red blood cells. They were absorbing it and integrating it. Mm -hmm. The breastfeeding women, however, they took the same dose and their levels didn't move, but their breast milk levels of DHA did. So we measured the level of DHA in breast milk and that's where all the DHA went during lactation, which was fascinating. Yeah. I mean, so the DHA, it gets preferentially and during pregnancy and during lactation, as much DHA as possible is going towards the fetus and the infant. It's just programmed that way. It's so fascinating. Yeah. It's quite mind boggling, isn't it? I mean, how our bodies innately Mm -hmm. will prioritize that nutrient to be in breast milk for the development of our babies. It's it's quite fascinating. Mm -hmm. So does that mean that pregnant women or breastfeeding women should be taking more DHA? Like, what are your recommendations in this space? In this space, again, I I tend towards the blood levels okay. because I don't feel like, a, I mean, one size doesn't fit all. Mm, so true. <laughs> um, generally, I think if you're a woman who wants to get pregnant, eating fish two or three times a week is a great thing to do. And that gets you around 200 to 300 milligrams a day of, mm-hmm. EPA, of DHA. Okay. And so that matches that recommendation well. And there's a lot of great evidence that that's a really good level of seafood to consume pre, during, and post-pregnancy. Okay. So if you're into seafood, the other big thing that I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but in the U.S., there's a big fear of fish during pregnancy. Mm, I would say the same, um, Yeah. Yes. So basically due to when we didn't know as much about what the mercury in fish could do to a developing child out of an abundance of caution in the U.S., the Food and Drug Administration and then Environmental Protection Agency put out warnings about mercury Mm. to pregnant women. And and that's continued to this day where if there's even a chance that I'm going to um, affect the cognitive development of my child, I'm not going to eat seafood. Is really, I feel like, where people are at. The problem is the research says almost the exact opposite and okay. that eating no seafood is the most detrimental to cognitive development mm. compared to eating seafood. And part of it is seafood is just the perfect package of brain nutrients. It's the only natural source of EPA and DHA mm-hmm. if you're not supplementing. Choline, yeah. hugely important and not in most prenatal supplements because it's big. It would make the supplements really big or you'd mm. have to take a lot of them. Yeah. But it's it's important and it's in fish. Also in eggs and other foods, but also like zinc, copper, selenium, all these micronutrients, it's a great source of protein. So it's when you're not getting the seafood in your diet, 
the biggest one is that DHA because you're not getting it anywhere else. Mm. It's not naturally found in other things besides seafood. So you have to then, if you're not going to have the seafood, then you do need to supplement. And I think for a just kind of a non-complicated population, two to 300 milligrams a day, if you're taking that over a long period of time, yeah, that is going to get you to 5% DHA. It's going to get you to maybe 6% of the omega-3 index. And that's pretty good. Like that's a good baseline. Mm. Um, if you want to get to 8%, that is probably going to give you even more benefits. But the most benefit happens at the low, getting out of very low levels. Okay. And just, you know, over that threshold. And then I think the rest is kind of gravy. But to me, if everybody took two to 300 milligrams of DHA a day before getting pregnant, I would take that over a few people taking a thousand milligrams during pregnancy. Yeah. So that's... <laughs> um, it's just, but if you do want to see a big effect, and we'll talk about this, if you're very low and you test and you find out that during pregnancy, you do need to take a high dose. You need to take a thousand milligrams to catch up during yes. pregnancy and to affect risk of preterm birth. So generally two to 300 is fine. Like taking a, a normal fish oil supplement is fine. You can yeah. take a gram a day normal fish oil, EPA and DHA, and that's going to cover your DHA needs and it's not going to hurt. <laughs> so yeah. it really, it's again, it depends on how much a person wants to supplement and how much they can handle. If you're pregnant, you can't necessarily take a supplement and keep it down, you know? Yeah. So there's yeah. all these other things. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's a good, like the synopsis really is that prenatally, before falling pregnant, if a woman can eat fish mm-hmm. two or three times a week, then she is going to be getting around 200 to 300 milligrams of DHA a day, which from all of your research and experience equates to around a 5% omega-3 index. So that's 5% covering... 5% DHA. DHA, sorry. Thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah, so that's definitely covering the basics. And it's good for us to have that solid awareness. But if she's not eating fish, then we have to move towards this, the appropriate supplement at that point. So that's prenatal. Now, the nutritional requirement for omega-3 fatty acids increases in pregnancy, as you mentioned, and it is required for all three trimesters. I was reading a 2018 Cochrane review of 70 randomised controlled trials involving just over 19,000 pregnant women, and key findings were that omega-3 supplementation during pregnancy was associated with reduced preterm births, less perinatal death, fewer neonatal care admissions, and less risk for low birth weight. Now, as a practitioner who works in this space, anything that does all of those things is mind-blowing, and we need to be aware of this and our fingers on the pulse with this. But what are your dosing recommendations for omegas during pregnancy itself? So this paper is so important, and this was spearheaded by people at the University of Adelaide. Yeah. Um, (laughs) You guys in Australia, Bob Gibson and Maria McCready's group has been the absolute leaders in this, and they are they are implementing now in South Australia with testing for omega threes in pregnancy, and just hats off to them. Mm-hmm. So this paper actually inspired us to look at DHA blood levels specifically and pregnancy, okay. um, because these results are so rare to mm. see 
In this study, it was a 42% reduced risk of early preterm birth in women who were taking omega-3s versus not in pregnancy. We never see that kind of data when you have this many studies with so much variability in them. So Mm. really strong outcomes here. So around dosing for this, there's definitely not enough doctors recommending omega-3s in pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Um, At least here in the U.S., it is not happening on on a large scale at all. And if you're just giving a general recommendation in the first, when you're first meeting with somebody and and they get the, you need to get a prenatal with folic acid, you also need to get a DHA source and at least two to 300 milligrams in that. My dream would be for us to test the DHA levels in these women. Mm. And then if they are at 5%, I say, keep doing what you're doing and make sure you're getting 200 a day. So either like you're really eating fish or get a supplement on board. If they're less than 5% DHA, I'm telling them to get a thousand milligrams of DHA Okay, and high quality as soon as possible. Mm. And I think we're going to talk about this, but the study done in Kansas City at the University of Kansas Medical Center with Susan Carlson, they compared 200 milligrams a day to 1,000 milligrams a day mm. of, of DHA and with the outcome of early preterm birth, which is before 34 weeks. Preterm birth is before 37. So this is really targeting the earlier births that have the higher impacts on quality of life. Mm-hmm. And so what they found comparing those two groups was that the 1,000 milligrams was more helpful or reduced risk for early preterm birth, primarily in women who came in with a blood level less than 5% DHA. Right. Women who came in above 5% DHA at baseline, it didn't matter if they took 200 or 1,000. They had the same rates of preterm birth in that group and it, they were, it was low. The group that did the worst was the women who came in with a low blood level and got 200 milligrams. Mm. So this is where I think it's super important <laughs> because the difference between 200 and 1,000 is pretty big when it <laughs> yeah. comes to DHA. And so this is where it's like, yeah, we could tell everyone to take 1,000 and that'd be super. But the reality of that is also like you might lose a lot more people. Like I, I need more people to just be on 200 because they're more likely to take it if it's yeah. one pill versus five. Yeah, yeah, that's a good <laughs> um, point. Yeah. You know, so that study really just told the story so well to me in the point where some the people who are lower need more and yeah. they need it more than what you kind of naturally need because they're super low and deficient. Yeah, I I read a lot of papers and it's not often that I read one that really kind of hits me and goes, wow, this is going to change the way I practice. And that one mm-hmm. really did, that if a woman had a DHA level of below 5% and, you know, she was given 200 milligrams of DHA daily compared to 1,000 milligrams, she was twice as likely to have a preterm birth. I mean, we can profoundly yeah. change outcomes for our patients based mm-hmm. on such incredible data like this. Yeah. And there's nothing else around preterm birth that mm. I know of that's yeah. preventative. Yes. And there's so much good safety data on D- on omega-3s. It's just such a no-brainer and it's just not being done. Mm. So kind of the next step for a lot of the people who have been in this research field, like Susan and Maria and Bob, they mm. are in implementation mode now. They're right. like, we've done these studies. We need this to be used. There's the cost-benefit ratio yeah. analysis. It's yeah. like 
There's no comparison. Uh, one preterm birth in the U.S. is on average $50,000. Wow. Okay. Um, with the NICU. I mean, it's absurd. And not to mention the quality of life, mm. the potential prevention of having certain issues due to excessively early preterm birth. Yeah. And we can do so much to make up, like their NICU processes. We have such great, great medicine to keep the tiniest babies alive mm. and thriving and doing well. But if we can prevent the early birth, they are growing. They are developing every day in that third trimester. They're getting mm. so much nutrition from mom and so many important things. But like, just the more we can keep them in the womb, the better. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So. And, you know, it's great to hear that the implementation phase is starting because you know, we really need every pregnant woman in the U.S. And, mm -hmm. and Australia to have this information and to be working preventatively in this space. Mm -hmm. And look, I know you've done a heap of work with levels of DHA in breast milk, but I would mm -hmm. love any clinical insights in this space? Because from what I know and my colleagues, you know, nobody's really testing breast milk and DHA. It's not mm -hmm. something that we are familiar with. And as a pioneer in this space, what can you tell us and teach us? Yeah. So the breast milk, it's just a continuation of what's happening in pregnancy. Mm. So the placenta is preferentially pulling up DHA for the infant to develop their brains and their eyes and everything. But yeah. it's very, very important for development. Breastfeeding is the continuation of that. That's their source of DHA mm. after they're out of the womb. And then formulas now have DHA and arachidonic acid as well. But that's their source and their brains are being actually built. And DHA, it's just, they, they need it. They need it to build their brains. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just really an important nutrient. So the DHA in breast milk is really just more of a nutrient level test mm -hmm. than a strong connection to outcomes. Okay. So when I was looking at this breast milk stuff, it was really hard to find studies that were just looking at breast milk and hadn't also like supplemented during pregnancy. It's just like hard to split out this time frame of pregnancy and lactation. Mm. But when I was looking at it, so breast milk responds really well to DHA and to EPA, but DHA is what's in there mostly. So taking, again, it's that two or 300 milligrams a day is what's currently recommended. Mm -hmm. Breastfeeding, actually, I think the needs might be higher than pregnancy, weirdly enough. And I think it's because you're outputting so much, <laughs> so yeah. many calories, so much fat, and all the DHA is going in there. Mm. There's some studies that have looked at what's the balance of how high does the mom's blood level needs to be for her to produce enough DHA to go into breast milk and her levels aren't being depleted. And it's really around 1% DHA in the breast milk, which okay. is about an 8% DHA in the mom, which is probably a 10 or 11% omega-3 index. Like it's high. That is significant. <laughs> For it to be in equilibrium. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, mom is depleting her sources to get enough DHA into the breast milk. Or if you're taking something, most of that's going into breast milk. And so... I would shoot for, at the baseline, at least 300, okay. you know, go higher, take a gram of fish oil and you're getting five or 600 of DHA. Not going to hurt. Not going to hurt at all. Okay. As far as the outcomes go, breastfeeding outcomes, when you're changing the level of DHA within breast milk, there's not a ton of studies that have done this. Some have found some positive outcomes on some cognitive tests in kids, but mm. I just think in general, it's very, very difficult to study <laughs> breast milk and think that one nutrient in the breast milk is responsible for 
like a full cognitive outcome because mm. breastfeeding is such an all-encompassing process. There's so much in breast milk. Mm. I also think it's very difficult to measure cognitive tests in little infants. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Those are hard. Those are really hard outcomes. It's also, in the pregnancy literature, most of the early stuff is around visual and cognitive development because DHA is so rich in eyes and brain. Mm, Of course. And if you completely devoid, like in in, uh, monkey models, primate models, they deprived multiple generations of moms from DHA and then saw major DHA brain and eye issues. Okay. And women, we aren't usually fully deprived of DHA. We always make some amount. So we don't see as extreme of that side, but that's where a lot of the research started. And then they started to notice, oh, preterm, like gestational age is longer mm-hmm. in women who have higher DHA. Mm. And then the flip side of that, oh, there's less preterm birth. And the preterm birth is a much easier marker to measure than a cognitive development of a child. Yeah, <laughs> like, yes, very obvious. It could it be? So these are some of the issues in the research that, to me, I think the breast milk DHA level is really important. I think being above 0.32% is kind of that low bar up to 1% anywhere okay. in there. It's great to get above that threshold. And that would take probably two to 300 milligrams to hit that bar Mm -hmm. um, and take more if you want higher levels. And it's good for mom. It's good for baby, whether or not it's going to, you know, change IQ by 100 points. No, but it's beneficial. It's a good nutrient to have on board and it's helpful for both mom and baby. But it doesn't have as clear of the clinical outcomes as the pregnancy literature. Mm, mm. It'll be interesting to see uh, if any research has been done with brain imaging of breastfeeding women with that Mm -hmm. lower percentage of DHA comparing the brain imaging of breastfeeding women who have a higher DHA. It probably hasn't been done yet, but that would be so fascinating to look at. That's a really good idea. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I think that's because there's <laughs> just a huge depletion happening. <laughs> yes, but how uh, depleted? Like, you know, uh, work a lot in the postnatal mm-hmm. space and women are always saying, I've got brain fog, I've got braby brain. And, and it's like, well, is mm-hmm. that physically, structurally a thing because your DHA levels have mm-hmm. been altered and your brain imaging, you know, maybe mm-hmm. it's it's actually impacting in that way. Um, it's possible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, last question for you. We've covered doses of omega-3s in, you know, prenatal and pregnancy and breastfeeding. But just lastly, you know, let's just take a quick look at the food as medicine side of things. We have talked fish consumption, but I wanted to talk about a 2019 review on seafood consumption during pregnancy and brain development. Mm-hmm. This is a great, great paper. This one, so we were somewhat involved in this as well. Bill Harris okay. was an author on it. This was a paper written, it was really spearheaded by a group called the Seafood Nutrition Partnership, mm-hmm. which is a great organization for you to check out as far as um, seafood questions go. And they're just fabulous. So one of the things in the U.S. is we have the dietary guidelines. And this group came together because researchers in the field of pregnancy cognition, mm-hmm. omega-3s, and on a public health level, they wanted to see the guidelines reflect that we need to support fish intake in pregnancy rather than just say, oh, you can eat up to this much before you're causing damage to your mm-hmm. baby. It's, no, we need to have this in our diets because it provides 
these nutrients and that are not anywhere else in our diet that are really important. So they wanted to make sure and go back to the literature and really take seriously this question about the seafood and mercury and contaminants and the risk-benefit ratio. Mm -hmm. And so they went back into it. They looked at all the studies they could find on seafood intake and pregnancy outcomes and cognitive outcomes as well. And they found even stronger data than they thought they would that more seafood intake during pregnancy was actually associated with better cognitive development, better IQ scores in the offspring. And this is despite the fact that women had higher omega-3 intake, they also had higher mercury intake because fish do have mercury. Mm. It's just not enough to be having a negative effect or the omega-3s and all the other nutrients with the fish are just so much more beneficial than than the mercury. So the mercury Like if we didn't know anything about mercury and you looked at mercury intake and these IQ outcomes, you'd be like, oh, mercury is good for your brain. (laughs) We know it's not, (laughs) but it's coming along with all of these other really, really great nutrients. So this paper is just a great foundational work for the public health message of seafood is great for pregnant women. It's really important. Mm. Um, Nothing in life is completely risk-free. There is some mercury in it, but it's just not enough to have the negative impact. Where you're going to have issues with mercury poisoning is is not from seafood. It's from excess pollution. Um, It's from really potent contamination of water or something, but not your standard fish that you can get at the grocery store or anywhere. Those fish are just very low in mercury. So that was really the reason for the paper and they were surprised at the findings that they were so strong and that made them even more like we have to get this public health message out that need not fear fish when we are pregnant. <laughs> yeah, and and I think we've we've got to keep that holistic framework of remembering that fish is, you know, really bioavailable protein, the choline, that I mean there's so many other nutrients mm-hmm. as you did point out earlier that uh, we have to keep that holistic framework in mind and not demonize mm-hmm. something uh, as blatantly as fish is bad in pregnancy. Yeah. And I think even in general like kind of to the vegan question and and we have big questions about sustainability of fish and and how well we can feed the world with the fish issues we have. And, mm. But I do worry about cutting out fish entirely and thinking we can supplement our way out of it yeah. in some ways. Yeah. I don't feel like that's a really great solution because there could easily be a lot more going on besides just the nutrients we know about mm. in fish. There's stuff we probably don't know about or just how they come together, how they're absorbed. So that's where having these kind of personalized levels where we can have a more moderate intake. We don't all have to be pescatarians to get benefits from seafood, you know? So if we kind of have a little bit more moderate outlook or we we eat some seafood and and we take some supplementation, we do a combination of both. Like, I just think there has to be... um, more nuance and more appreciation for what we don't know mm, exactly there's a lot we don't know <laughs> yeah, yeah. um well, nutrition so yeah. i'll tell you one thing christina we all know a lot more than we did before this podcast started okay. i have to say you are a wealth of knowledge in this space and i was so keen to get you on the podcast so that you could share 
all of your research, your clinical insights, and your ability to analyze the data in a way that really makes sense to us as clinicians. So uh, thank you, you know, so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much. It's it's really fun to talk to clinicians and and research, uh, just have more and more appreciation for what you guys are going through because you guys see all the outliers. Yeah, we <laughs> sure do. Research, we just average everyone together. You guys, every single person, you guys have to see as a person and and treat. So I just uh, I appreciate you um, being in the research still and um, and and having this this great clinical approach to it. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Christina. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Don't forget, you can find all the show notes, transcripts, and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Emma Sutherland. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. FX Medicine is not just a podcast. We also have free articles, infographics, and a monthly email newsletter, all designed to build your clinical expertise. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for our newsletter and get your latest free content.